Hey, y'all. I just have to preface this. Um, I found out that John Frusciante has a girlfriend, and it's not me. So, I'm sorry if I sound a little bit different today. If it sounds like I'm sad, it's because I am. Um, and I'll, I'll try to compose myself, but I'm really hurting on the inside. Like, this has affected me more than my parents' divorce. Okay, with that out of the way, I'm a quirky girl. If there was an opportunity for me to drop the fact that I like horror movies, I'd drop it, okay? Work training sessions, in passing, with crisis counselors. Honestly, and I'm not joking, I have talked about my love of horror with each of these people. But then, after our conversation ensues, I usually get the question, well, what's your favorite horror movie? This is such a difficult question. I don't think you understand how difficult of a question this is. And it sincerely is a trap because your taste in horror movies says way more about you than I think that you think it does. (laughs) And I mean all of these sincerely. I have far more than one horror movie, but it depends on what I want to convey. If I want to seem unstable, crazy, edgy, like I like animals, tusk. If I want to anger men, men. If I want to seem cultured and artsy and convey the fact that I have trauma because of men in my life, possum. If I want to communicate the fact that I have a crush on Will Poulter, midsummer. If I want to come across as satanic, lamb. But you get the gist. If there's a horror film, that I always come back to it. Even thinking about it and talking about it, it always is simmering and marinating in my head. It's also a safe pick to suggest to others, even novice horror fans. And that is Jean-Colette Seurat's Orphan. I have to tell you, I'm a rather new horror fan, and I've only been watching horror films since I was a teenager, and my parents allowed me to watch horror films um, that are rated R. I was only allowed to watch R-rated films when I was 17. So I've only been watching horror films for about four years. And I know I don't have as much history and experience as other people, um, but before this, I still have heard of the film Orphan, and I knew about it, and I knew that there was something crazy about it. It's off. It's not conventional, it's gothic, and it's dark, and it's crazy, but it's so seamlessly perfect and horrifying in unconventional ways. So, in this podcast episode, I'm going to be talking about the original 2009 film Orphan, and then comparing it to its newer prequel, which sounds weird, but we'll talk about it, um, and its sister, Orphan First Kill. Um, Major spoilers are going to be talked about. I think it's kind of a spoiler to say that there's a huge twist in both of these films, but there is. And so if you would like to save that reaction for yourself, I strongly suggest that you do. I will be spoiling and sharing the entire synopsis of this film um, and analyzing it. So I'll be talking about them in their cinematic order as well and not their chronological order. So I'll be talking about Orphan First Kill first and then analyzing it to its prequel, Orphan. Um, And so... Orphan First Kill has been rumored for a very long time, I think a few years, Um, and when I first heard about that, I was so excited and a little bit nervous, because it was told to be directed um, by someone other than Jean-Claude Seurat, which was terrifying to me. I really hate sequels in which their sequel is not, or I guess prequel in this case, is not directed by the same person. And then the director of Orphan First Kill is, of course, the notorious... Um, William Brent Bell, and he's the director of other notable horror flicks, which includes The Boy, The Boy 2, The Devil Inside, Separation. Um, people hate him. (laughs) He is not a popular horror director, and people were not excited to hear that he was possibly bastardizing the orphan prequel. 
I have a future episode planned in which I'll talk about William Brent Bell, um, as I call him, WBB, so I'll get more into him and my thoughts about him in the future, but let me just be honest that I really do like both horror films of Orphan, um, and I think the, my least favorite thing about the Orphan film, um, is the first, the first kill film is its name, um, for a long time when the film was rumored, it was called Lena, and I think that was a lot better of a title, I think it sounds better with, like, oh, Lena and then Orphan, I think that it was, no, I don't think you have to cater to fans in every single way, like, if you're not getting a new, you're not gonna ever have someone whose first interaction into the Orphan franchise is Orphan First Kill, I truly believe that if you saw Orphan First Kill, it is because you've already seen Orphan, and so I don't think that you need to have Orphan colon first kill i think it should have been lena but that's just me um so this film was also made 13 years later than the first um and it is a prequel to the first orphan film if it sounds confusing it's because it is um but this takes place before esther found her forever home with the coleman family and the film orphan this sounds confusing i'm just going to try to explain it the best i can Orphan First Kill is a prequel. However, it was filmed after Orphan filmed. And so in the prequel, um, the person who plays Esther is older. So I think Isabella Furman's like 22 now. And so she's older than in the first film. Um, and we'll get into the twist in a little bit. So I hope that clears up any confusion. But Orphan First Kill. Um, the film takes place of Esther, me, Lena. I'm going to call her Lena. Um, because she is Esther. <laughs> it takes two years before the events of what takes place in Orphan, and this film begins at the Sarn Institute, which houses Lena Clammer, who is a patient there due to being extremely dangerous and deceptive, as she uses her disability, which gives her, um, proportional dwarfism, I believe is what it's called, um, and she uses her small stature and looks to appease pedophilic men. We'll get into that later. Um, in an epic showdown, Lena flirts with the guard and turns this opportunity to escape from the Institute, and then in the outside world, she uses the internet to scour missing child forums and finds a young girl of what she bears resemblance to. This missing girl is from Connecticut, and her name is Esther, but her family lives in Germany, I think, at the U.S. Embassy, and so um, Lena decides to go on the prowl, and she goes on a playground, and appropriate the child's identity and is found by a police officer who finds Lena Nee Esther now um, and decides to return her to her family in Germany despite her being in Estonia. Um, she's reunited with her family. She has a mom named Trisha and her dad Alan and her brother Gunnar. Um, her family is very thankful to have her home and they revel in her appearance um, and is excited to have their child return. However, someone is not so excited about that and that is Detective... Donnan. <laughs> I don't know that name. It's a stupid name. But that is his name. Detective Donnan. Ugly name. Um, and so he's the only one who has confusion. She's getting along well with her family. Um, and she really does get along well with her dad. And she's assimilating well into the role of Esther. Um, and she's a really good con artist. So she's really good at lying to everyone, including her psychiatrist that her mother hired. Um, and because of her disappearance and the growing pressure of Detective Donnan, Esther, you know, Lena, the same person, they decide to take, well, she decides to take matters into her own hand and stabs Detective Donnan to release the tension. Um, and then in his dying breath, he reveals to Esther that, to Lena, that Trisha, Esther's birth mom, her real mother, um knows that her Esther is not her real Esther. 
And then as he's saying this dying breath, he's saying his dying last words, I guess, um, Trisha comes and shoots the ever-living crap out of him um, and reveals that she knows that Esther was not Esther all along um, and reveals her motives that Esther, the real Esther, died after her brother accidentally killed her. So Trisha helped her son cover up the murder in order to save her husband's feelings and to preserve Gunnar's relationship with him. And so Trisha says she'll need Lena's help to let her husband down easily as there was like a quote in it and it's like the only thing worse than a dead child is a missing child. So they're hopefully going to let the husband down easily. They're not really sure how, but they need Lena's help to do so. And so they then enter in this weird relationship in which they both know exactly what they're doing. They both have understanding of underlying motives and they both vie for Alan's attention um, and both, I mean, they're both perverted people um, and they both want a sexual and romantic relationship with Alan. I mean, you know what they say when they say that children ruin sex lives? I didn't think this is what they meant. <laughs> but, um, shh. All right. So Alan leaves the house on a work trip. And while away, both Gunnar and Trisha are setting out to get rid of the evidence once more. But this time, not being Esther, it's, it's Lena. Um, and of course, Lena being the girl boss she is, she murders Gunner and then shoots him with a crossbow. Thank you, girl. And then the house catches fire and Trisha and Lena fight on the roof when Alan comes home. And he is given the option to either save Trisha or Lena, um, his wife or his beloved daughter. Um, and Alan chooses Esther, thinking that that was his daughter. And they briefly appreciate each other's presence for both entirely separate reasons. Um, because, you know, of course, Lena wants to fuck him. <laughs> and... Alan's excited to see his daughter. So, you know, both very pure and rational reasons. And then as he's squeezing her face and giving Esther love, um, Lena's fake teeth pop out and reveal her true identity of not being who she is. Um, and in utter disgust and shock, Alan falls off the roof to his demise. And we are left in conclusion, knowing that Esther is left an orphan and is later adopted off the clauses that she is a sole survivor of a house fire. So, with the prequel being released after the first movie, it leaves us in on the twist, and I'm glad it worked out this way, honestly, as the audience was left scared and anxious to see how Esther's family would react when realizing that this isn't their daughter, and we had to find out some way or another because it had to lead to the second film. Um, so, it was really exciting to see that there was a twist to it and that it wasn't so linear as we once thought, um, and I actually really liked the prequel. I thought it was very good, and it was unexpected, and it was interesting because, like, halfway through the film, we found out the crazy twist, and we just have to accept the Trisha is in on it and will do anything to protect her family, even if it is accepting the death of her daughter and even killing more to protect that fact. This is what the theme of the movie is to me, and that is the horrors that one will take to protect their family, as well as a personal perversion of morality, as Trisha does all of this to protect her son and husband, and she even loses a daughter, feigns a disappearance, and allows a felon to live with her and flirt with her husband, all in an effort of allowing this lie to proliferate. But even after all that work, it still fails, and her husband still finds out. Because families are so insular, it makes lies and secrets that much more painful. I mean, in my personal life, I just recently found out that my grandfather was not a good person, and it ruins everything else for you. And so I can imagine how this all works out in the grand scheme of things and morality. I mean, you want to protect your child, but how far does protecting your child go? And I think this is what is indicative of what a poor mother is. 
I work with children. I think that the most effective form of discipline, it's not spanking, it's not yelling, it's natural consequences. To protect a child from natural consequences is hurting them. What better teacher is there than the consequence of your own choices? And as a parent and, and role model children, you are there to help guide them through these choices, to teach them what a good choice is versus a bad choice. And to have a son do something so horrific, like accidentally murdering your sister, and then to absolve him of all consequences, that's the most harmful thing you can do to a child. Now, let me be clear. Let me be clear. I don't believe that this is a realistic possibility, nor do I believe that this is what happens when horrible accidents do occur, but I don't believe that someone should be plagued by their horror and grief for the rest of their life, but to live a life like nothing happened, it's terrifying, and it obviously raised Gunner to be an asshole, and he's a horrible, careless person, as in the film. What I did like about this movie is that it stayed true to the original material, which we'll talk about in a sec, um, and it took the original story and everything about it, every single detail, every single reason of how Esther got there, every single reason as to why she is, it gives a reason to it. And no one can do Esther better than Isabella Furman, and so I'm very excited that she reprised her role, even if it being 13 years later. Um, and surprising fact, Leonardo DiCaprio helped her secure this role, and she does it like no other. If there was no Isabella Furman, there should be no Orphan First Kill, and I'm glad that it was just her. Um, there was an inherent charm to it. It was hokey, it was a bit funky at points, but it was good. Um, and I'm very glad there was zero implementation put in to make her look younger or something. I thought it worked well the way that it was. Um, they just used practical effects instead. They didn't use technology to modify her face or to give her, um, make her look smaller. They didn't have a different actress to have her stand in for her face, but they just used good camera tricks and a child stand in for more practical effects, um, when it is farther away. And if you're interested in more about this, Isabella Furman's Instagram, there is a photo of everyone because when you act in a scene with Isabella Furman in this, you are wearing lifts or stilts and there's a photo of it. And that most of the time, the actors were on lifts to make her look smaller. Um, at the beginning of the film, I will be honest, it was a little bit wonky to first accept, but I think that it assembled rather quickly and I'm glad that they did it this way rather than any other way because, again, there was an inherent charm about it. Oh, and pardon me, let me just... What do you mean by that? And now we begin talking about Orphan, the second one, which was released first. Um, and I'll give a brief synopsis before diving more into the analysis. Um, and again, if you haven't seen this film, you probably should if you would like. I think it's a strong film. But for those who haven't, Orphan is a movie about a husband and wife named Kate and John. John and Kate plus eight you know um same people inspired by the same family of course and in the beginning of the film we see that kate is giving birth and the baby she gives birth with was born like was a stillborn um and as a memorial to commemorate her um deceased child kate has planted a white rose bush in memory of her baby jessica and this passing of their child has driven a wedge between Kate and John and has caused a lot of tenseness in the family. Kate has resorted to alcoholism and I believe that John is also coping through another mechanism. I believe that he even cheated on Kate if I'm remembering correctly but the loss of Jessica has 
really hurt the family. And so as a means of coping um, and to add to their family, as Kate and John have two children, Max, who is deaf, and an older son named Danny, they decide to go to an orphanage and adopt a child. And this child that they adopt is Esther. Um, Of course, we know who is Lena. Um, They decide to adopt Esther as she is, you know, a child who is eloquent and she loves art and is very well put together as far as a child and they take her home decide to adopt her and she is automatically impressing everyone including um max who is deaf um and esther you know being the little girl boss that she is um communicates with max instantaneously through asl which let's be honest is a little weird because esther's from estonia so she probably would have a better chance of knowing esl estonian sign language but that's neither here nor there but Esther becomes a celebrated, loved, and cherished part of the family until the Kate, especially the mother of the house, notices that insidious things start happening and all of them relate with Esther. Um, and her Esther's frou-frou, sweet, young daughter persona um, quickly deteriorates in front of Kate specifically. Um, and Kate starts to go mad, noticing all of these horrific things that Esther's doing, and no one except her knows about this. Um, and Danny, who once hate Esther, now loves her and fears her, of course, um, due to Esther's actions. But there's one person who loves Esther a lot, a lot, a lot, and that is John. John treats her like a daughter and loves her especially and sees that she's getting along well and so it sort of seems that Kate is the only one who has an issue with her and Esther noticing um who notices Kate's rancor towards her um she decides to make an act of um oh my goodness what is that word she she just expiation she wants to make an act of expiation towards kate and she cuts a bouquet of white roses which of course is baby jessica's rose memorial um they both know this like kate knows that esther knows and esther knows this um but it looks innocent but she's well aware um and then kate in an act of you know she's frustrated obviously so she's you know suffering from indignation with this demon child um and so kate grabs her by the arm and like gives her a good old shake and esther then claims that kate broke her arm that night then she goes to of course her daddy john for support and john kicks kate out of their bed to make way for esther as kate is supposed to sleep downstairs that night um because Esther so loves her father um, in a totally not inappropriate way, um, she decides that she wants to have more of this time without any other sibling and decides to fulfill um, her taste for arson by lighting Danny's treehouse on fire while he's still in it, of course. Um, and there's a scene where the treehouse burns down and it's locked and Danny can't get out, and but he's miraculously still alive and then hop- hospitalized. Um, and at the hospital, Kate slaps Esther. She obviously knows that she was one who did this to Danny. Um, but because this was in front of everyone, oh my gosh, like this is the most frustrating part is seeing how bad Kate is suffering. Um, and rightfully so, like, so she slaps her daughter, which of course, like, alerts the, the senses and the, the wariness of onlookers. And so the doctors sedate Kate and keep her in the hospital while John and Esther and Max all head back home while both Kate and Danny are in the hospital. 
Um, and that night, John and Esther put Max to bed, just like a nice married couple would, and then say goodnight to her. And as they say goodnight, Esther takes her hearing aid, and this is where the craziest scene happens. This is, like, the spoiler. This is the shocking twist. Um, while Max is asleep... <laughs> John relaxes and tries to nullify his extreme emotions of anger and hurt about his wife and his son. Um, and so he takes a few drinks by the fire and Esther prepares for their date. Um, and so Esther, she's all dressed up. She gets ready. She sits with John and comforts John as he wallows in his sorrows for his broken family. Um, Esther, of course, comforts him being a good, good girlfriend. <laughs> Um, she tells him he's wonderful and he's a great husband and that she loves him, um, maybe more than a father, um, and makes a move on her father. And John reacts with disgust and anger and pushes Esther off of him. My God, like literally that's the only way to react. And Esther becomes distraught with unrequited feelings. And, you know, this is probably the greatest scene of the film. Like the, the, the most shocking scene in the film was before this. This is the best scene. And if you want to watch this, if you already have, I still suggest watching it again. It is probably one of the best scenes in horror history. Um, but we have a scene in which shows us disparate situations of both Kate and Esther. Um, Esther, in her sadness, she removes her little makeup that she put on um, to impress her father. And simultaneously, Kate receives a call from an Estonian sanitarium warning that the child, Esther, that she adopted um was a former patient there and she is no child she is indeed a 33 year old woman named lena clemmer who has proportional dwarfism a disability that keeps her small and then we cut back to esther and she's now without makeup and reveals to the audience that she adorns fake teeth and has wrinkles um which i mean like come on let's be real you don't get wrinkles right when you turn 33 it's obviously dramatized and they had to make this small child look like a grown woman and it is like it is a startling and an effective scene but let's be real no no one's looking like a granny when they're 33 unless you smoke and don't wear sunscreen um and then in the final act of the film kate escapes from the hospital to save her family um danny is left to the dogs in the hospital and esther shoots kate um but esther drowns and in the family's pond with kate leaving us with this awesome sentence saying to esther i'm not your fucking mommy um which i find myself saying to a lot of weebs on discord so highly relatable um but before we get to the other stuff i just have to briefly talk about this this was not the intended ending to orphan the intended ending was supposed to be even more of a shocker and it was supposed to leave us with Esther killing Kate and then going back into the house and just living there and I feel like that's Parasite like like for we've seen Parasite do a similar thing recently but I feel like that would have been such a freaking cool ending and I feel like I like endings that are not satisfying I like endings that make you angry and that would have been so satisfying why didn't we do that sometimes bad things should happen to good people and sometimes that's fun <laughs> but that's not how the film ended of course and i mean i think it's probably a good thing because then we don't get another sequel um i know i like orphan first kill but i'm glad we don't have like a oh esther went on to be adopted again <laughs> I, I feel like that's always a little bit terrifying but um that was a longer synopsis of orphan that went to every little detail and 
The main theme of Orphan is said to be that even innocent seeming things cannot truly be trusted, even children. I disagree with this. I will get into that later, but I don't believe that's the main theme of the film. Um, and with this film came its controversies. It was released in 2009, as aforementioned, and it received a rather noticeable call for a boycott, um, even supported by prominent people like Congress people and parents um, and adopted parents. So many people found it to be cruel to be drawing horror and fear from the idea of orphan children. Um, a noticeable quote from a psychologist responding to the film during this time said, it is very nice that Hollywood can produce such a horrific and violent film portraying a vulnerable orphan child as a demonic. And in all honesty, and in my opinion, I feel like this film's horror elements stem less from the fear of what children can do, especially those who are orphaned, and instead deal with more of the idea of the horror that happens with a man falling in love with a child or parent-child relationships. That's what is the most uncomfortable thing for me. And honestly, no hate to Jean-Colette Seurat. I'm sure that was a question of like, what's the scariest thing I can think of? And a man would respond, being helpless to a woman's seduction. Um, in perversion of relationships coupled with a patriarchy and trend of cheating, we hear men just argue that they were seduced and that there was no way of escaping and that they were somehow helpless and victim to a consensual act of romance. With someone like Esther, she's a woman who can use her childlike figure and appearance to manipulate. And I'm sure that to many, it is horrifying to think of pedophilia affecting relationships. But the horrifying thing is that it does. This actually happens. The University of Utah conducted a study scientifically finding that men like shorter women as they apparently, and this disgusting fact is quoted, shorter women appear more youthful and have closer to the ideal body proportions. This is not a farce. This is not an overstatement. Pedophilia has been invading patriarchal, sta patriarchal standards for the longest time, and it's insidious, and it's so pervasive. Let's think of the ideal beauty standard for women. As University of Utah clearly pointed out, short, proportional body types, skinny, youthful, hairless, no pubes, no rinks, no armpit hair. Who else has all of these traits? Give me a sec. Oh yeah, fucking children, okay? One could argue that in the current beauty standard, let me give you like a benefit of the doubt. Yeah, okay, like big boobs, large butts, they're desired over the desired, like, oh, boyish look of the 1920s. But the lack of these attributes, like small boobs, small butt, they're also sexualized. And that's just an indication of the influence of pedophilia, but also a man's propensity to sexualize literally everything about women, in this case, children. <laughs> Additionally, and even more incriminating, all of the largest and most popular, popular porn searches are all fucked. But every year, schoolgirl and teen fall on the list they always fall into the ranking people get off on pedophilia because men are what pedophilic there you go oh my god how horrifying this once beautiful young girl is actually a grown woman with wrinkles and stained teeth how horrifying this young girl that i fell in love with isn't actually a young like come on john of course, in this film, has, did not fall in love with Esther's attempts of seduction, but let me just put it out there that 96% of pedophiles are men, and the younger the victim is, the more likely they are to be abused by a family member. I'm sure you can catch my drift. When I reference to the possibility of Esther being likely successful with seduction attempts, this is my opinion. You can disagree. 
but there is an overabundance of evidence pointing to the disgusting amount of pedophilia and its influence on those affected by the patriarchy. And I do want to add that despite the fear of adoption trends declining after the film's release, there was a fear of that, right? Everyone was afraid that this being released is going to decrease adoption attempts. There's been no evidence of that. So I don't feel bad when I say that I like this film, right? There's been no evidence to show that moviegoers have actually feared the contents of the film. I feel like these fears are done in good faith. You know, I feel like people are worried to prevent good children, good orphan children from being hated on or not adopted. But if you actually like watch the movie, if these people were actually fearful of what the film actually had in it, they'd conclude that if anything, the main villain wasn't a homicidal orphan child, but instead a mentally ill and manipulative woman, period. (laughs) This brings me to what I believe the main theme of this movie is. Despite its notions of pedophilia, this is what I believe the main theme of the film to be. And that is the evil that ensues with manipulating the vulnerability of the traumatized. I think that this theme is often seen as manipulation of the vulnerable done unto women and children, but this film takes it a step further and puts it on its head. And despite how much I despise these facts and these insinuations of pedophilia, this movie was still good. (laughs) And I think it's a good pick of a film with a truly shocking twist. Coupled with immense gothic aesthetics, good acting, and frustrating storyline, this all makes a good little stew for a good psychological horror. There are no jump scares in this movie, not that I can recall, and there's not really any overboard gore or anything like that, but the audience is just as frustrated as Kate is, which is what makes it psychological trauma that she's going through. And she's already lost a child, and she's already, you know, dealing with alcoholism and dealing with a broken family, and we're just forced to observe this woman deal with all these harrowing things, and that's what makes it a psychological traumatic film, because we're watching and experiencing the same things this poor woman is. And the idea that things continually go wrong and horribly for a prolonged period of time, that is what true horror is to me. Perpetual trauma. And during this entire discussion and writing of my notes for this, I've been reminded of Ari Aster's directorial debut, The Strange Thing About the Johnsons. This is one of my favorite short films. Point blank. If not my favorite. Okay, I'm going to say it right now. Out of all the short films I've seen, this is my favorite. And it's disturbing. So before we get to the next part, I want to give you an opportunity. If you can handle discussions of incest, it never being shown. But if you can handle it, go to YouTube, watch the short film. If you can handle it, you need to watch it. It is disturbing. It is amazing. I'm going to give you a second. Pause this. I'll give you even like five little more seconds so you can pause me. Okay, we're moving on. Uh, I'm going to give you a synopsis of it. But if you haven't seen it, just know that it's a really, really, really effective film. As aforementioned, shockingly, um, this film depicts an incestuous relationship between father and son. But like Orphan, it flips this cliche on its head. And the perpetrator in this film is the son and not the father. This is an extremely dark, tonsalons-esque film, and it reminds me of the horror in both the films. In this short film, the mother of the son and wife to the father, she knows of the relationship the entire time. She is aware of her son abusing her husband and still thinks it's best to do nothing. This reminds me of Orphan First Kill, as it shows someone's shame towards the action of their family and someone's perverted sense of morality guiding their choices. 
but also making an immense effort to the immensest, if that's even a word. She takes the craziest actions to keep their family together. Plainly and crassly put, if you're a fucked up person and you do nothing to change that, you're going to have fucked up kids. (laughs) Sorry to say. (laughs) But like Trisha in the first movie, come on, girl. Like, fucked up choices make fucked up kids. I'm one of them. (laughs) So, together and in comparison, both orphan films have something poignant about them. I love them both sincerely. I do. And then, I also am reminded of just, you know, incestuous relationships and inappropriate relationships between families. And I think that's disgusting and disturbing. And I think that's what makes it so shocking in the orphan film. Because... Compared to other horror of this time, this was crazy. And it still, it still is. Um, but both films have something poignant about them. They're not all dark and depressing, and I don't leave the film wishing I was dead, you know? I love them both, and I sincerely think that they are both good films. I think that they're both good films for newer horror fans, too. And they are truly shocking and grotesque, without being actually gory or grotesque, without that sort of disgusting horror and jump scares. Not that I'm adverse to either of these, but I feel like this is definitely a more accessible horror that is very strong and does deserve the hype around it for being a more mainstream type of film. (laughs) But I do think it points to a larger issue with theming and the insinuation of certain familial structures because a lot of society points to things that are immoral but of course that's what the film is about you know it's it's these immoral topics and i I can't imagine obviously like there's a hokey situation but it is interesting to think about and i think it points to a larger issue in society but that is all i have for orphan not too much of an analysis i feel like with these rather straightforward films it's pretty easy to gather the thoughts and the you know catch the catch the drift of the director but it does warrant some interesting conversations about our society and what we view horror to be because obviously someone's going to find this to be horrifying and I think it's interesting to think exactly why is it horrifying it's an interesting topic why do you think it's horrifying why do you think the insinuation of someone you're caring for not actually being a child like why is that so scary and I'm interested about that so thank you for listening to my rants and my tangents and my long synopses. Um, I hope that you enjoyed this episode and thank you all so much for all of the support. I love doing this. I am a pathetic person who takes notes while watching movies. Um, and so thank you for feeding my ego and allowing me to be pathetic, um, in front of an audience. But I hope you are doing well and being kind to yourself and others as that what mat- that's what matters most. Um, and I hope that you are doing well. Bye.